welcome to another edition of the Unicorns Podcast. This is a podcast series featuring business leaders, motivators, innovators, and general go-getters. Well, Senatas is an Australian public company. It's on the ASX with the stock code SEN. It specialises in cyber security. Its solutions have been trusted to protect much of the world's most sensitive information for more than 20 years. Working with private and public sector organisations in more than 45 countries, Senatas is used to protect everything from government and defence secrets to international property, financial transactions and citizen privacy. I'm joined by the CEO, Andrew Wilson. G'day, Andrew. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, it's uh, an honour to be uh, invited to present on your podcast. So thanks, everybody, for listening. There you go. So tell us about your professional background, Andrew, maybe to start with, and how you became to be involved with Senatas. Yeah, well, it's an interesting story. I started life um, at KPMG, where I worked for a number of years, and then as many Australians do, you know, um, head across to London, where I worked uh, for some banking organisations in London for a few years, got sick of the weather over there, and got this call out of the blue um to, and when was that that was you know that was january 2000 right in the middle of the tech boom mm-hmm. and um, an old associate of mine rang up and said hey do you want to come back to australia i've got this really interesting job opportunity and uh so i had a bit of a look at it and i thought yeah i'm sick of the weather in london I want to come home um and it was Senate. so you moved to melbourne <laughs> so, well I, I was from melbourne and um yeah i mean the weather's pretty much the same as you know, <laughs> in london to be honest um but nonetheless you know it was it was yeah. i took the job and and i thought uh yeah this is the tech boom everything's going exponential i'll be able to retire in a few years right by the time i got back the tech crash had happened oh dear and, uh, mm. yes oh, oh dear so, you know, um, it was a lot of work to do to, um, you know, I guess to, to get my feet under the desk and, and have a look at the investments that Senatas had made at the time and yeah. started life as a, a venture capital company. Okay. So, you know, there was a bit of cleanup to do as mm-hmm. a lot of the businesses we invested in during the tech crash, you know, evaporated. But one of the businesses that... Um, uh, Senatas had invested in was in a really interesting, you know, encryption hardware business at the time. And during those days, nobody could spell encryption. Nobody understood <laughs> what that was. They still can't. They still can't. Yeah. Although people were sort of, you know, more familiar with the concept. Yes. Which is great. Um, so, you know, I started as finance manager there at Senatas and, you know, 2006 moved into the uh, CFO's position you know, having um, helped the company adapt its business model to focus on this hardware encryption business that, you know, is the the bulk of our revenue generating activities today. And then uh, took over as uh, CEO in 2012. So okay. uh, it's, um, you know, it's been, a, it's been a great journey for a great Aussie company. So you've been in the, um, in the hot seat for, for almost ten years now, what's uh, what's that journey been like as uh, as the CEO of Senatas? You're making me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So, uh, look, it's it's been a, a great journey, and you know, one of the things I love about the company is uh, the employees at the company are highly skilled mm. and passionate about what we do. We think um, our technology makes the world a safer and better place. So, I believe in in the mission. Um, uh, so that's. You know, what I've enjoyed about being at Senatas, of course, being in the hot seat's not easy, right? The buck stops stops with me and there's many stakeholders' expectations to manage. But yes. overall, I enjoy it, right? And, I'm, you know, I think we're poised now for that next chapter of growth in the company. We can talk about that a bit later on. So how do you describe, Andrew, uh, what Senatas actually does? Yeah, well, look, put simply, we've got, two components of the business. Uh, I talked mm-hmm. earlier about our high-speed encryption business that you know we've spent 20 years building up and that we now export our products to more than 50 countries around the world with, um, with mainly government defence customers, probably that, rep- that segment, that those industries represent about 70% of our total revenue. But, um, you know, we do have uh, commercial customers, some big cloud companies in, in the US, mm-hmm. you know, Salesforce and, and, and Oracle and, and Microsoft are some of our, you know, large US customers. You know, even customers like Aldi are, are super serious okay. at um, encrypting their, their data as they should be. So, uh, you know, Boeing, um, you know, many, many companies around the world. Um, and we distribute uh, our technology through Talos. We've had a long-standing relationship with with Talos since 2003. Um, we have an exclusive relationship with them and, and that's been fantastic. Working with Talos has enabled us to, to reach, you know, just about every country, you know, uh, more recently Tunisia and, um, and, uh, and Oman. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's pretty exciting. There's a lot of travel involved, of course, you know, when 90% of your revenue is generated offshore, you really need to be um, travelling to as many countries as, as possible and meeting the Talos team, educating the Talos team, supporting the Talos team and building relationships with senior management. I really enjoy that aspect of it. Yeah. So you know, and we're, we're on, I'm on first-name basis with many of these uh, senior executives at, at, at Talos and, you know, they're great to do business with. And the, and the other side of the business? So the other side of the business, so I guess um, since 2006 we restructured the company, um, sorry, mm-hmm. 2012, we restructured the company, uh, brought on some cornerstone investors, you know, our chairman and another another investor, um, undertook a rights issue, renegotiated some key contracts in the company and, and grew revenue to around about um, $20 million today from $6 million and improved the share price from half a cent to, uh, to where we are today. Um, so... We built up quite a lot of cash running up, up into uh, 2018. So we were looking at, at other ways to grow the business and we identified an Israeli cybersecurity company called Fatiro. I was really yes. impressed with their technology and the problem that it seeks to solve in the um, cybersecurity market and for government enterprise customers is, is, a, is a significant problem sort of, you know, brought to the fore by this cancer of ransomware that's spread across the globe. It is, We invested yeah. in, in Vitero in 2018 and um, we restructured the board, obviously, from a um, finance perspective, restructured through the investment, the finance, and sat down with the company and, um, and helped them with their strategy, right? And the strategy was 
to try and break into the United States. And that's been a really interesting journey. Of course, COVID, COVID didn't help, right? So 2020 was a, a difficult year, but we're seeing some yep. exciting growth prospects now fire up um, in uh, 2021. So that's uh, the other side of the business. Um, mm. And you're a director of Vitero as well. Yeah, I am a director of Vitero. Um, hopefully they think that's a good thing. But um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so yes, they're the two key aspects, core aspects of our business. We also have a secure collaboration tool called Shoredrop, and you know that's that's looking pretty uh, encouraging at the moment as well. What's we, that? Um, so so this is a, a technology that allows organisations to securely share documents. I mean, I don't know if anybody listening on this call has ever tried to send, you know, a large document to somebody via email. Well, firstly, it's not very secure. Secondly, if it's a big file, it's probably getting blocked, right? So Yeah, yeah. or it gets jammed in someone's yeah. inbox or it gets oh, rejected yeah. or it yeah. slows your computer down for half an hour. Yeah, it's a total nightmare. So, you know, uh, and a lot of... A lot of staff find ways to work around corporate systems and in the past organizational or individuals might have dropped data onto Dropbox, their own personal account. Mm-hmm. And that's not a great way of sharing, you know, company confidential data um, because it sort of leaks out of the organization. The organization loses control of it. And then, you know, um, where is that data stored is an issue and how is that data protected on some of these other services? Well, we mm-hmm. offer you know, a sovereign um, file sharing capability where the data is stored in Australia and it allows the customer to have full full visibility of where that data is going, who it's going to, and it's obviously encrypted because we're an encryption company. That's another exciting uh, product of ours that um, we've been working on for a number of years. Andrew, do you reckon most punters at work, white-collar work or even, you know, potentially blue-collar depending on what they're doing, um, would have any idea whatsoever of what's happening to their data? Um, I doubt it. I doubt it. I mean, certainly, you know, we're sharing more information online. Mm. That um, what, whatever we share persists in, in a digital, um, digital sphere forever. Um, obviously, individuals as well as businesses are the targets of, you know, extortion t- tactics such as ransomware, um, identity theft, so no, it's a it's a serious problem, um, and I don't, I doubt whether the individual is understands where their data is. There have been a, a few high profile cyber attacks recently. Uh, do you think this is going to ignite businesses to invest in their cybersecurity? I, I think businesses generally, um, certainly at the large enterprise end, have been investing in cybersecurity solutions. <clears throat> I think, um, you know, there's more work to do. There's more education to do. I believe, though, that the, you know, small, medium-sized enterprises um, are, you know, a little bit behind in their understanding and preparedness for cyber attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a continuous cycle of understanding the risks, knowing where your data is, <clears throat> knowing where your important data is as well, and putting in sort of a risk and control framework to ensure that that data is protected. I mean, it's good to see that um, you know ASIC is is uh, is trying to educate um, boardrooms uh, of the importance of cybersecurity risks, as the government is doing, and it really now is um, firmly on the agenda of boards as a significant risk to businesses that uh, you know um, 
at the most senior levels of an organisation, if they start taking that seriously, then I think that's a catalyst for for change and investment in cybersecurity technology. So, you know, it has migrated from you know the an IT responsibility to an executive responsibility. Yes, over five, five, yeah, is which is really important. I mean, I liken liken um, the risk of cybersecurity to the risk of occupational health and safety and. Obviously, um, it is the responsibility of executive officers and directors to ensure the workplace is safe, right? So if if you're found not to have um, put in appropriate safeguards to protect employees' uh, well-being, then, you know, it carries criminal penalties under the OH&S Act. So, you know, I think we're probably going to – we're headed down that path for cybersecurity Um, and uh, and that's a good thing, right? So – that's and it's probably question. one of those things that, um, Andrew, as you mentioned, the C-suite is only just getting their heads around. It'd be a case of, well, we've got an IT department we're looked after, but maybe not to the extent of a potential uh, ransomware attack or a big data breach that now this is really serious for an organisation. It has to be addressed. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And, you know, we are seeing... Um, cybersecurity, uh, particularly ransomware attacks on organisations here at home, like uh, Toll Holdings and um, Channel Nine News, the Nine Network, Media, yeah, Network. You know, um, it's it is a pervasive threat across all sorts of industries. It's a we saw the um, Colonial Pipeline attack in the United States, mm. Mm. which represented a a real threat to um, energy infrastructure. Um, which is pretty scary, right? So it is um, it, it is a real issue. It's good to see the government um, recently come out and, um, you know, with a regime of increased uh, fines and penalties and also reporting obligations on organisations that have been the subject of ransomware attacks, you know, that's important um, regulation, I think, as well. But, you know, a lot of these attacks are perpetrated overseas, so you just wonder how those individuals sitting in another country might uh, might be fined or prosecuted. And I think that's part of the complexity in dealing with um, cybercrime in general. It's 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 not um, it's not usual that those perpetrating the crime are actually, you know, in Australia doing so. Are you able to offer an opinion on what the potential motivation is behind these attacks? I mean, what, what, why do these people do it? Oh well, and most of it, uh, most of these ransomware t- attacks are motivated by financial gain. Mm. You know, think it, think of it as you know the the robbery, the physical rob- robbery of the future, right? Mm. Instead of you know uh, sending a truck through the stick them uh, up, uh, yeah, uh, with a note, you know, stick them up, you know, hand over your bag of cash and let's crack the safe. Um, in a physical <laughs> sense, um, you know, a hacker can sit in another country and perpetrate this uh, crime from the comfort of his lounge room. And, mm-hmm. um, and potentially um, it's far more lucrative as well. And, uh, and, and ransomware, of course, um, extorts organisations by, you know, encrypting an organisation's data, um, which cannot be unencrypted or decrypted unless you've got the encryption key, which the ransomware hacker holds. Um and then in order for you to gain access to your data, you've got to pay a ransom in Bitcoin, which is notoriously difficult to trace, right? Mm. So, mm. you know, it's it, it's criminally motivated, most of the ransomware attacks, um, in, in my view. 
So if, so if this is happening and we're seeing it happening around the world, how then as a business can Senatas move in and, and help uh, companies stop it, prevent it, slow it down? Yeah, well, I mean, ransomware is just one, um, you know, one kind kind of attack. You know, organisations, um, you know, government defence and large uh, enterprise organisations that generate valuable intellectual property um, should be concerned about um, theft of theft of secrets, economic secrets, and you know, we've we've seen over the years that um, companies have been targeted, government defence agencies have been targeted for for those secrets, and sometimes. Unfortunately, they're, you know, it's it's motivated by state-based espionage. So in, in those cases where an organisation has really valuable intellectual property, you know, what we offer is that when that, um, the, when that data is transmitted outside an organisation, you know, we encrypt that data to ensure its, its confidentiality so that if it is intercepted or it is stolen, well, it's encrypted, right? So it's, it's, um, it has no value. It's useless. It's, it's yeah, useful. without the key. Yeah, scramble. That's exactly right. So you know, we off we we offer a um, you know a military grade encryption hardware device that's specifically built to ensure the highest standards of security when transmitting um, your valuable information. So that's that's one way, one really important way for an organisation to protected data is to encrypt everything. Now, encrypt it when it's in transit, encrypt it when you store it um, is really uh, uh, one aspect of the business that we excel at, the um, okay. encryption of data in transit. But Vitero is is um, a different technology again, and I think the Vitero technology is very good at um, preventing malware. Now, now, malware could be in the form of a ransomware attack, um, from uh, entering an organization's uh, perimeter and preventing that malware from infecting the environment. Is this what they're talking about with, um, we've heard a lot about zero trust? Yeah, well, zero trust is a, you know, an interesting um, uh, approach to, to data security. You know, it's basically a, a network security model that's based on strict identity verification process. So it's a framework that dictates only authenticated and authorised users and devices can access applications and data. So it's sort of a paradigm where you never trust but you always verify. You uh, have very strict access privileges to, to data and you have full, full visibility and inspection of, um, of files and data. And this is, uh, this is where Vitero comes in because, you know, it... Um, it intercepts uh, a document inbound to an organisation. It compares that document file type to the published uh, file format. Take, for mm-hmm. example, a, you know, a Word document. You know, you, you send me a proposal in Word. You say, Andrew, you know, mark up what you don't like and I've marked up your proposal in a lot of red, red ink um, previously. And, you know, that comes in. Vitero will sit in line it will compare the Word document you've sent me with the published file format, Microsoft file format. It'll migrate anything in that document consistent with that file format into a completely new document and leave all of the other stuff behind, anything that's okay. consistent. Yeah. So in that regard, it's not actually looking for malware. It's just saying these things should be in the document, migrate that. Anything that shouldn't be in the document, leave it behind. 
So the beauty of it is that um, it is protecting organisations from malware because it's not consistent with the file format, as opposed to a lot of other technologies which specifically look for malware in a document. And that's difficult because to look for malware in a document, you have to know that you know you have to detect the signature of that malware, and in many mm. cases, a zero-day attack will not have a known signature. So, in that regard, it is it does fit well into that zero trust architecture. I'm talking with Andrew Wilson, the CEO of ASX-listed company Senatas. So, Andrew. If there are CEOs out there listening to this broadcast, um, how would they know that the data within their businesses is safe? That's a that's a very good question. Well, firstly, I, it, it comes down to, and this would be my message to any CEO running a business, is, is going through an audit process to understand uh, and classify your data um, from the most critical data, obviously that's what you want to focus on, um, and classify where that is, who's got access to it, um, and then you know look at sort of public data that an organisation may be dealing with and, and you know communicating, which may not be as sensitive, and focus um, your security controls on that really sensitive data. Is that an is that an easy process? Is that is that something that can be can be done quickly, or is that or is that no, seen by many businesses as oh that's all too hard? It's that's just so much of a headache. I don't need to worry about that. No, I, I, look, I don't think it's an easy process, but it's a critical process. It's yep. in, in fact identifying what is your most critical subset of data, the crown jewels of an organisation you can't afford to lose mm. or have accessed, or you know, or or encrypted by a ransomware attack because it makes it very difficult for an organisation to recover. I mean, for example, here at Sanitas, we have source code. Source code is um, our most valuable digital asset and and we know exactly where that is and our development environment is completely disconnected from the internet. So we take pretty extreme measures to prevent an attack um, and theft of that particular source code. So we know at Sanitas if we lose that, then, um, you know, that's uh, potentially a, a catastrophic uh, issue for us. So my message to any CEO listening to this is uh, identify your crown jewels and ensure that um, uh, those crown jewels are protected, mm. exactly who's got access to it and where it yeah, is. It's like, who's got that login? <laughs> <laughs> who's got that login and, 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 and whose password is called password? That's a problem. <laughs> one, two, three, four, exclamation right. mark. Let's change that one, right? Um, so, you know, and you've got to start there, I think, as um, an organisation. So you're doing business all around the world, multiple countries. Can you offer an opinion on how Australian businesses, say, stack up security-wise against some of the other leading nations of the world? Um, look, I think Australia stacks up pretty well. I mean, it's certainly good to see the Australian government take steps to to ramp up legislation requiring organisations to protect data. You know, in, in February 2017, the government implemented a mandatory data breach notification regime, you know, as an, through an amendment to the Privacy Act in 1998, um, forcing organisations who lose data, sensitive data, you know, to go public with it. So, 
you know, nobody wants to um, be the subject of a, um, you know, a, a data breach and then have to notify everybody because that draws shareholder attention to it, ASIC attention mm. to it. People are going to ask the question, well, what did you do to prevent it, right? So, uh, you know, I think that raises the stakes for organisations. Um, you know, more, Definitely. Re- more recently, you know, the government's introduced some amendments to the security, um, the critical infrastructure bill, um, you know, to broaden the range of industries that are subject to that um, to uh, ensure that critical infrastructure assets, you know, whether they're private, whether they're um, government-owned, um, really increase the, their cybersecurity um, controls and standards. So that's good to see as well because obviously critical infrastructure is, is, is a target increasingly and if you disrupt energy grids if you disrupt um, utilities then it can bring an economy to their knees so that's you know it's good to see the government introducing um, amendments to that critical infrastructure act mm-hmm. um, and then more recently uh, even sort of last week the government introducing you know greater fines and penalties for um, perpetrators of ransomware attacks you know yeah, organisations yeah. to report when they have been attacked, etc. So, and I think that has really raised the standard of Australian cybersecurity um, preparedness. But there's obviously more work to do. And so, what about quantum computing and its effects on encryption? What's um, what's Senator's got to say about that? Yeah, well, I mean, look, quantum. The quantum computer will be far more powerful than a classical computer. You know, a classical mm-hmm. computer is code information into bits, right, ones and zeros, and it calculates an equation based on whether something is a one or a zero, right? Whereas a quantum computer, um, you know, which was first devised by Alan Turing in the late 1930s um, using qubits, right? and yep. These qubits are subatomic particles such as electrons or photons that can store information anywhere between a one and a zero. So it doesn't have to be a one or a zero, right, as in a classical computer calculates um, equations. It could be in a state anywhere between one and zero, right, Mm. in a principle called superposition. So it means that qubits can store information, more information than bits, and therefore, the computational power of a, of a quantum computer is sort of exponentially greater. So when we have a quantum computer that's powerful enough, right, our encryption algorithms that we use today, our asymmetric encryption algorithms, will become insecure overnight. And, you know, the person that proved that was Peter Shaw, an American mathematician. So it represents a pretty serious threat to, that, to today's, um, you know, classical approach to encryption. So... You know, what are we doing about it? Um, well, we have implemented a, a, a quantum toolkit to ensure that our products remain secure in the event that uh, a powerful enough quantum computer is, um, is invented. And we will get there. You know, IBM estimates that a working quantum computer outside the lab environment is going to be a reality in the next five years. Mm. And, you know, it may already be a reality because there's billions of dollars being invested in developing a quantum computer. So, you know, what have we done at Senatas? You know, we've implemented all of the NIST quantum-resistant algorithms. 
Um, and NIST is the US National Institute of Standards and Technology. Um, and there is a short list of new algorithms, quantum safe algorithms, that will eventually be whittled down to a single algorithm. At the moment, you know, we give our, our customers the ability to test using those algorithms in our device. And, um, and once NIST finalizes their new quantum resistant algorithm, um, then we will be able to ensure that our customers using our devices will be running quantum safe uh, encryption. So we also use um, you know, quantum random noise generators for the um, generation of uh, key entropy. So, you know, that's what we're doing. Random noise generators. Sounds, right. sounds like someone's party on a Friday night. It sounds like me on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah, love it. So um, we have to ensure that our customers are safe in a post-quantum environment and we uh, have a toolkit ready to do that for customers. So, you know, we think that's going to be a growth area for the business and um, we think it's going to become a critical issue over the next, uh, you know, five, ten years. Well, let's let's finish on um, a look ahead, Andrew. You've spoken about the future and potentially what's coming. What can um, what can shareholders and uh, and all of us um, expect from both Senatas and Vitero in in the months and years ahead? Yeah, look, I think um, there's always going to be a need for the kind of um, you know very secure hardware encryption device that um, that we develop. In fact, you know, we're, we've got opportunities in, in more and more countries and we can expect some revenue growth um, over the next uh, medium term. We do have a bit of a headwind at the moment uh, and that is in relation to the availability of um, electronic components. I'm sure listeners to this podcast will be aware that there is a, you know, there is a supply crunch. That's going to hurt us a little bit from a revenue perspective. Um, but Vatero you know, present some pretty exciting growth opportunities, um, particularly in the US as we're winning more customers of Fortune 500 companies, mm. um, companies like uh, Liberty Mutual and recently the New York Times uh, have become customers of Vitero. And, you know, we see a pretty exciting growth opportunity for Vitero over the next year, two years. You know, we expect its, um, its uh, revenues to double over the next 18 months. And, um, and it also is in a, uh, a much larger addressable market than our, than our hardware encryption technology. So let's get ready for a good uh, 18 uh, months to two years. Amazing. Well, we will be um, tracking the stock uh, and the progress with a lot of interest. Andrew, thanks for coming onto the show. It's been terrific talking with you today. That's Andrew Wilson, the CEO of ASX-listed company Senatas. Andrew, thanks for your time. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, everybody.